Faulkner, for me, he changed my life, my sense of literature. He's my touchstone figure. Hello, my name is Suzanne Mumaw, and I am the director of the University of Virginia Press. Welcome to our podcast, featuring authors, ideas, and perspectives by some of the world's most interesting people. Founded in 1963, the press supports the academic mission of UVA by publishing more than 70 books, monographs, and digital editions from scholars and public intellectuals writing on subjects from history and politics to architecture and religion to the rich history and culture of Virginia. This podcast crosses several of those areas. Award-winning professor and author Carl Rollison's exploration of the life of William Faulkner in two volumes gives new insights and perspectives on one of the world's most iconic figures. The first volume focuses on Faulkner's early life and writings until 1934. The second on his later life, including his time at UVA as a writer in residence, and then the Hollywood days. Interviewer, Professor Emeritus of English Stephen Railton has done some of the most extensive digital and electronic documentation and mapping of Faulkner's work. As we listen in, I will leave you with a Faulkner quote set in Charlottesville. In April 1962, he was invited by President and Mrs. Kennedy to a White House dinner in honor of the Nobel laureates. He declined saying, "Why, that's a hundred miles away. That's a long way to go, just to eat. Mr. Railton and Mr. Rollison, take it away. Hi, Carl. It's going to be a pleasure to talk with you about this biography, which I have enjoyed very much. As a first question, you have written over 40 books in just under 40 years. But I noticed that the very first one that you wrote 150 years ago, <laughs> was a, a doctoral dissertation about William Faulkner. That's right. You haven't written much about him in the interim between that dissertation and this biography. I've written some. The dissertation was revised and published as a book in 1984. In the 1980s, I was still publishing on Faulkner. I did a piece for Mississippi Quarterly uh, about Faulkner and film on the film Tomorrow with Robert Duvall. And I think actually, although I didn't know this at the time, the origins of this two-volume biography are in an article I wrote for South Atlantic Quarterly, which was about uh, William and Estelle Faulkner. Uh. It was called Counterpool. And it was very much about the, the dynamic between them. And then other than a few book reviews, you're right. I didn't, I didn't continue writing about Faulkner. So as somebody who's been away from Faulkner, more or less, for 40 years and 40 books, what was it like to come back to him with this vengeance? <laughs> when I first got interested in Faulkner's undergraduate, studying with M. Thomas Inge, great Southern literature scholar, and then Michael Milgate at the University of Toronto, and I certainly looked upon him as a, a great author. At that point, when I got my PhD in 1975, I still never dreamed I was going to write all these biographies. <laughs> I thought I was simply going to be a Southern literature scholar. 
But I got interested in biography actually through uh, Norman Mailer and his book on Marilyn Monroe because he raised fundamental issues about biography that made me realize that one of my interests in Absalom, Absalom and Go Down Moses and other Faulkner novels was his uh, use of dialogue and the way characters constructed or reconstructed one another's lives. And then I suddenly thought, well, you know, I'm interested in his uses of the past and history, but really it's biography that's my interest. So that occurred to me by 1986 when my first biography of Marilyn Monroe was published. And though I wasn't writing about Faulkner or even reading Faulkner all that much, Faulkner, for me, he changed my life. My sense of literature, he's my touchstone figure. And through the years, I certainly continued to think about his work and read him from time to time. How had Faulkner changed? How did he seem different to you now than 40 years ago? And, and what has, to use that Faulknerian term, what has endured? When I was a graduate student, I had not really thought at all about Faulkner's film work and his screenwriting. And what suddenly occurred to me, and believe it or not, part of this had to do with my work on Sylvia Plath. She didn't want to just be a great poet. She wanted to be a great novelist. And she wanted to write for the Ladies' Home Journal. She wanted to write for the Slicks. She wanted to write for all kinds of things. And it suddenly occurred to me, you know, Faulkner wrote for the Saturday Evening Post. He wrote for Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. And then he went to Hollywood. And I began to think about the fact that when I read all these Faulkner biographies, when you got to the film part, it was kind of like Meanwhile Back at the Ranch. That is, the biographer really wanted to talk about all these great novels. That's understandable. But I began to think of him in a global sense and as a writer, period, which is the way Sylvia Plath thought of herself, not just, I'm going to make my mark as a poet. And because of all my work in biography, I've developed really a very healthy skepticism about what my subjects say about what they're up to. And I had this hunch, this suspicion, after realizing that Faulkner had spent the equivalent of about four years in Hollywood off and on over more than 20 years, that this genius could not have gone to Hollywood and not both have made an impact on Hollywood and Hollywood have an impact on him. So I got very excited about that. Now we're up to about 2015 and I was coming up on my last sabbatical before I retired and I thought, well, I'm gonna come full circle. I want to come back to Faulkner. There have been all these other things that, in a sense, have gotten in the way of my first love. And I'm going to return to that. And so I went down to Mississippi and I talked to Larry Wells, who was married to Dean Faulkner Wells, Faulkner's niece, and who's a repository of all sorts of lore and knows lots of people in Oxford. I talked to him, but most importantly, I talked to Jay Watson, who runs the Faulkner Yachtnapatafa conferences and, of course, many other things. Anyone who knows Faulkner knows about Jay's work. I said, you know, I have this feeling about William Faulkner that, that the other biographers have not really explored, and that, that is of him as a writer really tied in with popular culture in ways that people don't think of that. I think of him as a great modernist, but not, not a popular culture figure or interest in popular culture. And I said, and then there's all that film work. There's George Sidney's dissertation, which was done in 1959. And Bruce Cowan did a good book, Faulkner and Film. But of course, you know, I had been away from Faulkner Scholarship for a long, long time. And Jay, very nicely, <laughs> didn't, didn't uh, point 
exactly point this out to me. He said, you know, there's been a lot of work on Faulkner and film, literary scholars, you know, you might want to look at. And I thought, boy, well, that was stupid. Uh, of course there is. But I thought, yeah, but it hasn't gotten into the biographies. And they'll quote Faulkner about, well, I don't think I was really good at it, or I was a motion picture doctor, and so on. So that's what really galvanized me, as well as reading people like Judas Sensabar and thinking, uh, there's more there about Estelle that really has to get into a biography. And then, like all Faulkner scholars, I always wondered, what happened to Carville Collins and all that stuff? Carville Collins is an extremely important figure in Faulkner biography, having never published a Faulkner biography. <laughs> <laughs> he began to work on his Faulkner biography in 1948. And I believe he died in 1990. And as far as I have been able to determine, never wrote a word of a biography. He certainly wrote articles and, and I knew him, not very well, but I, had, I met him several times and talked to him. You know, I'd say, when are you going to finish carpet? We'd say, well, I haven't found the figure in the carpet. <laughs> <laughs> that old James term. So uh, anyway, he never did it, but he collected an enormous amount of material. And the other thing people need to know about Carvel Collins, even though he was an academic, he was unlike academic biographers of his time in that he was a real pack rat and he would talk to absolutely anybody who had any contact with William Faulkner, which meant, for example, he interviewed the staff of the Algonquin Hotel because Faulkner stayed in the Algonquin Hotel in New York. So he left behind transcripts and notes of all these interviews from 1948 to practically 1990, he made over 30 trips to Oxford, interviewing uh, you know, Faulkner and members of his family. So it was just a treasure trove. So then I began to look at the notes in the Faulkner biographies to see who had used Carvel's work. And it turned out nobody except Jay Perini. And that was very spotty. I saw a few references to Carvel Collins' papers, and that was it. So I just sort of parked myself in Texas. And, and went through those 105 boxes. What, that is one of the things that I was very impressed with reading the book, that you have not only read or reread every word, as far as I can tell, that William Faulkner ever wrote, but just about every word that has been written about William Faulkner mm. in that last 40 years. So how would you say your Faulkner changes the conversation that we have had? Well, uh, to use an academic term, one of the things you might call this book is an intertextual biography of William Faulkner. So, for example, when you read about uh, the Wild Palms, or the title he used, If I Forget the Jerusalem, and you read about um, Charlotte Rittenmeyer and Harry Wilborn, and their relationship, and the time they spent in Pascagoula, and then you read his script for Drums Along the Mohawk, and you see the relationship between the husband and wife in that film. There, there's even a line there about how the woman wears the pants in the family. Well, that occurs in the novel, too. So there are those kinds of cross-fertilizations. People say, well, Wild Palms, it's an experimental novel. You have these alternating chapters. And that's one of the things that sometimes people, you know, they treat Faulkner as, a, as I say, a high modernist, as someone who's difficult to read and so on. Uh, and then I was looking at Drums Along the Mohawk and I thought, you know, this love story, the way it's, it's presented, Faulkner realized that as it was presented in the novel, the Walter Edmonds novels, it's really not 
terribly convincing in a way. And a lot of Hollywood films and love stories aren't really convincing. And to me, The Wild Palms, partly, it's a response to what Faulkner was forced to do in writing about this couple, Henry Fonda and Claude Colbert and their movie stars. So you accept it because they're movie stars, but Faulkner didn't accept it. And that's what I thought. Boy, he's really thought about what it's meant to write that film and then go back to his novel. So I hope readers see that kind of thing. Now that's going to be volume two. Yes. Volume one takes us through those first couple trips to Hollywood. Right. But we haven't had we haven't had a chance to see in much detail how working in film uh, might have changed his own work as a writer. The, the one anticipation I got of that, you were talking about the film he was making for Hawks, and you can remind me of the title. Of yeah, Today We Live, yeah. Today We Live, and <laughs> I love the moment when Hawks has to tell him that the studio <laughs> hired Crawford, and she's going to be in the movie, and Faulkner wrote, I don't remember a woman in the story. Yes. You had a really interesting reading there about how working on the story that he'd already written and then being forced to make room for a woman in it. Yes. A prominent woman. Yeah. Might have given him a whole new way to reimagine the role that women could play in his fiction. Faulkner's attitude is interesting here, partly because he treated it as a job. He was able to learn on the job. Whereas other fine writers like F. Scott Fitzgerald came to Hollywood thinking of themselves as slumming, you know, they needed the money. Well, Faulkner needed the money too. But that doesn't mean that he didn't learn things, that he wasn't shaped by it, and even shaped by Joan Crawford, who also, by the way, gets a reference in The Wild Palms. I was really impressed with that idea, how we can make the connection between that and Judith Sutpen, the Snopes, the women in his later fiction who are, have stories of their own. I have a couple more questions. One of them has to do with these two different roles. You've been talking about yourself as a biographer, but one of the things you also are is a first-rate literary critic. But I just wondered if you could talk for a little bit about those two different roles and how you see the relationship between them. I think that if the, the biography is really working in terms of your writing a narrative, there's something organic that happens. I honestly don't think I could have written about Faulkner's works without also thinking about Faulkner as a man and the experiences that were happening to him. I thought those two things went together. People often treat literary biography as a problem. That is, you've got the life and you've got the work. If you talk about the work, suddenly it becomes static. So the question is, how do you put it all together and try to continue to make it as an evolving story. And for me, I'm always driven by the story I think I'm telling. And that's driven my research too. I can look at everything in a sense, and I can look at some things pretty quickly because I have the story that's driving my focus. So for instance, I was unbelievably thrilled when suddenly there were these letters published between Faulkner and Will Bryant, the man who sold what became Roanoke to Faulkner. And Faulkner writes this long letter about this film he's working on for Hawk called Sutter's Gold. And there isn't any other Faulkner letter I've ever found in which Faulkner wrote with such excitement about film script. So I thought, well, if he's that excited about it, those things go together. If you just read every printed interview with Faulkner, you'd say, 
he didn't like Hollywood. He didn't do well in Hollywood. End of story, which is pretty much what previous <laughs> biographers have told you. And and this other question is maybe too provocative and unanswerable. But at one point in the biography, you make this really provocative assertion that for all that we've made about Faulkner's obsession with the past, oh yes, yeah, and also has a lot to tell us about the future. Yes, a his and ours. I thought I might get into trouble by making that statement, <laughs> but I noticed it. <laughs> And I have to say that I have an article that's going to come out in the July issue of the Hedgehog Review, which is called Faulkner as Futurist, or How He Predicted the Election of Barack Obama. And what I talk about in that article, in part, is Charles Bond. Now, Charles Bond, he comes out of New Orleans. He's an exotic. And there's this absolute fascination with him, but also the whole element of rejection of him as a foreigner, in a way. Sartre had the famous essay about Faulkner being obsessed with the past, as if you're in a railroad car and going backward. What Sartre tends to, to leave out is that the, Faulkner may be seated in the train looking backwards, but the train is going forwards, and Faulkner is quite aware of that. And then if you look at some of his outside the fiction, some of his speeches he made when he was touring the world, he was very conscious of things like population and how most of the world is not white. We better get on the right side of that because, you know, if we look at it through our provincial lenses, we're going to be in trouble. So I don't think he would be too surprised at what's happening now. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. You can find Volume 1 of Rollison's book, The Life of William Faulkner, at upress.virginia.edu. UVA Press Presents is a podcast by the University of Virginia Press and a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. Many thanks to Stephen Railton and Carl Rollison. UVA Press Presents is produced by Mary Garner McGee. Our theme music is Greylock from Blue Dot Sessions.